Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Welcome to the WSO Weekly Wrap-Up, where I talk with my team about the five most trending discussions in the Wall Street Oasis community. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Weekly Wrap-Up. It is March 2nd. We are struggling today. We got some sick people and the bill's out. We're, we're going to try to have it done with just the two of us today. We'll see how we do. I can talk a lot, so I think we'll be okay. Um, <laughs> All right, Matt, go ahead and kick it off. Let's see what the three top uh, topics are this week. Cool. Yeah, definitely short and roster, but uh, I think we got this here, Pat. So uh, first question, I know I've definitely given this some thought um, in, earlier on in my career. Um, so would love to kind of get your insights on this, but uh, someone dropped this in the forums. How much of a career, gra- career gap is too much and how can you justify that to recruiters? Uh, any thoughts on that specifically, Pat? I know there's a common trend specifically with people coming into the industry uh, a lot of people I don't want to take, you know, a couple of weeks off, travel Europe before kind of jumping into IB or into the PE space. My worry was always, you know, if you're taking too much time off off the bat, uh, coming off of school, does raise, raise some red flags. But what are your thoughts on that um, overall uh, in terms of taking a, a gap before uh, we're jumping in? I think you should you should try to take a gap. I think a couple of weeks is nothing. I think even a couple of months isn't a big deal. Uh, where you start getting into, it gets a little bit more like, uh, could potentially raise eyebrows is like over three months, um, three to six months. You get past six months, it starts really, you better have been doing something. And then you start talking over a year, um, then it's it's even harder. But what I'll say is um, there's ways to like prevent that. So let's say you get fired. Like I got fired early in my career. Um, usually the person or the company firing you wants to keep things friendly, like they don't want to fire you and have you pissed off and whatever. So usually sometimes they'll let you say you still work there while you start to search for sometimes for like a month or two. So they're still paying you. I doubt they're still paying you. No, that often, well, no, sometimes they'll still pay you. That can be like part of your severance and they'll keep yeah. you off for a couple months. But um, the point is like, ideally you're finding another job to go to prior to like having a true gap on your resume so the gap may be six months, but it may only look like two months on your on your CV and on on LinkedIn, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so like that's a big deal is like make sure when you're if you're exiting, see if you can actually negotiate that as part of like, you know, the severance where you're you know signing, getting a either a severance and whatever. Say, hey, can I say I'm working here through, you know, if it's, let's say it's let's say what is it March right now? And let's say you got fired today. You could say, hey, can I say that I'm working here, you know, through uh, you know, through May or into May. And yeah. even even if you work till May 1st for two months, May 2nd, then you can have May as like the date. <laughs> and so that covers you for three full months. So theoretically, if you have like a five-month gap, it only looks like a two-month gap. It's not a big deal, um, as big a deal. 
And and out of curiosity, the, the, some of these numbers, Pat, change. I know you mentioned, you know, six months is is okay. You know, once you start pushing them to a year, it's obviously a little bit more worrisome. Well, no, uh, six months is six months is already. You're kind of it can it can raise some. They're going to ask if you have six. months. They're going to ask. But yeah. what I want to get at is kind of because this is a nice kind of segue into just the whole macro, right? There's a lot of people that are getting laid off right now. Firms aren't as active recruiting and bringing on new talent. Do you think firms kind of understand that as well? So maybe if it is, you know, eight months, nine months, 10 months, even a year, you have been proactively looking for jobs, but just haven't had any luck because of the macro situation. Do firms take that into consideration or do you think it's more? Yeah, they do, but it doesn't, they do, but it doesn't reflect great on you. Like if it's layoffs, like deep cut layoffs, there's more like understanding. Um, Definitely not a big deal, but like, who are the, who are the kids that are going to be getting picked up fastest? Like, it's going to be really talented people that were cut just because there were deep cuts. So if you're still sitting there kind of four or five months later, six, you know, eight months later, um, a year later with nothing, it kind of is like, well, what's going on? What are we not seeing? That's just going to be going through the head. And that's why it's so hard to get another job when you don't have a job. I always say like, get your next job while you still have a job. Um, yeah. Because just- and I think that that probably comes off the back of networking, right? The idea of, Exactly. Consistently networking, never stop networking. Yeah. Um, you know, you, I guess you should always be networking, especially in IB and PE, just naturally because you could also be, just be sourcing for, you know, future deals. So it's always good to kind of be making those relationships and maybe one day you do get laid off. And then that, right. Yeah, or the fund, goes, the fund goes south. Like what happened at the fund? Yeah. Like the fund had a couple of big blow up bankruptcies and then like they went from 20 investment professionals down to four. Like yeah. there's no way you're avoiding that. You're cut. Like you're done. So I got even then uh, another question before we segue off this is yeah. what should you be doing if you do get laid off, right? So obviously there's going to be the initial shock. Um, no, I've never personally gone through it, but I can only imagine yeah. uh, the initial shock. You know, there's going to be a little bit of self-reflection there, kind of figuring out what went wrong, why did it go wrong? Um, but how, you know, what should you be doing to ultimately, if you didn't be, uh, if you weren't networking to find your next job while you're in your current job, what should you be doing to, to help increase your odds of landing a new gig in a fairly short amount of time. Yeah, personally, I think a little bit of reflection, a little bit of downtime is totally normal. I think take at least, you know, first a day or two just to reflect on like, hey, what went wrong? Was it actually performance related to be honest with yourself? Um, Or was it, you know, something where it was just unavoidable and it could be either or a combination of the two. But try to really look back and think, is there something you could have done differently just to see if like you can get a, get some learnings out of that. Number one, number two, I'd say like after a week of just like, you know, watching Netflix and chilling and, you know, just feeling sorry for yourself, it's time to kind of get going and, you know, polish up that seat, uh, that resume make sure it's looking, looking really good. Um, and start really, yeah. Getting on calls, talking with people, trying to figure out your next step. Um, and, and really trying to map kind of your next few steps. And so I always say like, try to figure out where you want to end up to figure out kind of what your steps in between need to be. So it's not just like this impossible dream or possible. So it's like work, working backwards almost. Exactly. Yeah. You should work backwards. It's just so much easier if you're like, Hey, I want to be like this person or I want to be in that, that seat. Um, you know what, if you can get on the phone, a phone call and even have a good mentor that'll like walk you through the steps of what they think you need to do and then follow up and actually um, execute on that. I think it, it just shows, uh, yeah, I think you're going to be in, in good shape, but you just, you don't want to be sitting around and feeling sorry for yourself for several months. That that's, that should be time spent like building out, um, 
the connections, making sure you're getting into interviews, getting sharp on your interview skills again, because that may be rusty because maybe you haven't interviewed for a couple of years. So taking taking WSOs interview prep courses. <laughs> yeah, of course. Financial of modeling course. skills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even yourself, financial right? modeling skills, yes, but like even more so just the interview prep, like making sure your stories are are tight. And and then more very importantly, like what if it is performance related or culture related, like the the firing or the being let go, kind of being very polished around that specific answer. So if you're let go, you don't have to get like into super de- details, but you can say, you know, you know, my previous seat was here. I think things went really well. I moved to this firm thinking that I was going to be doing X, Y, and Z. It was a little bit more of this, which I don't think was a great fit for my skill set. And um, culturally, I don't think we meshed well. And I think it was a mistake on my side for you know not doing the diligence beforehand. So if you can be a little bit like forthcoming, like not just blame the company, I think that comes across well and being humble. Yep. Be like, you know, I really think, but but I do really think um this this role or this firm is a much better fit for me because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, you know, it's more similar to my previous role where I really excelled and blah, 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 blah. Something like that where you're able to kind of tell a believable story of, of why it didn't work out. Um I think it's good. You don't want to harp on it and be like, oh, I really messed up and da da da. And, you know, uh, or, or talk, you know, trash about the previous that that looks bad. So you kind of need to, need to kind of thread the needle a little bit and make it seem like you're mature and humble. And so you you definitely, at the end of the day, have to prepare for the conversation, I think. Yeah. You don't want to, yeah, you're going to be asked. You're going to make it short, concise, but have that ownership, own up to Mm -hmm. it. And then, you know, show how you kind of changed your process of, you know, looking after or looking over a next potential career opportunity and why things is a better, better fit. Yep. Um, one question I did want to ask before we move off uh, to the next topic. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on a, on a LinkedIn post? I've seen some pretty cringe ones when people get laid off. Should we be doing that? <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? It seems sometimes like a little bit of a pity party. Um, what do you think? Should you be posting on LinkedIn a long thread? If it's, little, if it's like, out? if you've been at like Google, like for 10 years and you want to make a post about it, I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's fine. Um, I think if anything being forthcoming, that might actually help you in terms of see, getting opportunities thrown your way, especially if you're coming from like a top brand. It's just kind of announcing the world as like, I'm on the market. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And then suddenly you may not have to do as much networking. It may come a little bit to you if you have some followers and stuff like that. But yeah, if you've only been at a place for like a year or two, it's kind of silly. Um, And I I prefer to do it privately so that you don't have that record kind of there. Let's say you want to go back and be like, let's say six months later, you don't have anything. You're like, shoot, like, can I stretch the, can I, I have seen that happen sometimes though, too. People, people leave. And then, you know, a year or two later, they do come back. So I think at the end of the day, definitely don't want to burn your bridges. Um, I think I agree with you on that. Yeah. If you've been out of business for only, you know, a few years, probably doesn't warrant uh, this word essay on, on on why you got fired. Um, I think it's just at the end of the day, pretty common. Everyone gets fired Uh, or not everyone, but it's, it's definitely a common, situation so i wouldn't uh hang your head too low but uh great convo there. let's move on to the next topic here before we run out of time this is what i said two-man team but uh we both like to talk here so we could go on uh forever um i think this one's right up our alleyway here specifically around spending time in investment banking you know and you know the common theme here is spend two three years in investment banking and you know you find your exit off whether it's into the hedge fund space private equity or become an entrepreneur um but Shockingly, there's a few people that actually enjoy the work and want to stay and, and kind of move up the ranks there into, you know, director and becoming an MD. Um, and one of the questions was, you know, how does that 
process take place, making the jump from VP to director? You know, what does it really entail? I think we all understand, you know, how to move up from analyst to associate, even to VP. I think that's pretty common, just naturally because a lot of people do make that jump. Um, but then there's less people making the jump to becoming an MD. So there's a lot less visibility in what that actually takes. So we had some members discussing that. Um, Pat, what are your thoughts on on how to make that, yeah. uh, you know, reality? Yeah, I think the job is super different from like, even from analyst to VP, it becomes from like, you know, grunt processing docs and PowerPoints and, and models to kind of managing the grunts at the associate level <laughs> to uh, VP still grunt, level. Still grunt, so yeah. VP level, you're still doing some of that, that associate level work where you're having to kind of manage processes, but at VP level, you're kind of expected to start uh, sourcing and becoming more of a more of a sales role, which is a really tough transition if you think about it. It's like completely opposite skill set of um, what you've been doing. Like it's an internal, like yes, you're meeting clients and whatnot and shaking hands, but you're not actually driving the business into the firm. So um, yeah, so I think it's a very hard transition. I think a lot of people struggle from that jump from associate to VP, and then at the VP level, they're kind of all the MDs and the directors are all looking at you. Uh, like, okay, you know, are you sourcing? How are you sourcing here? Build your business. And um, I think the skill set here is all about, you know, um, reaching out to building relationships with actual uh, executives, CFOs, CEOs of, you know, with ideally within a specific niche so that they come to know you as a trusted advisor. And they're yeah. to you when they, hey, when they want to make an acquisition or they want to sell a specific specific division or, or whatnot, they're going to come to you first. So that's kind of the, that's the that's the bridge you need to make instead of like it just being solely focused on process work and putting together a great deck and going and just shaking hands. It's like actually going out and meeting new people. And uh, like somebody said, you know, sourcing deals outside the company network. So you're bringing additional value and additional revenue into the firm. So I, I think, think, yeah. I was going to say, I think actually the harder part, I know you mentioned obviously is taking away from the mindset of process driven and, and going into more relationship building. But I think, what I would envision being pretty hard is, you know, as you kind of move into that relationship building sales oriented mindset is you're now speaking or trying to get business from the true industry professionals, right? If you don't have that background, say for instance, where you're, you know, you want to become an MD on, on a mining team that IB mining IB, the people you're going to be speaking with there are like geologists, people like, they know mining from top to bottom. Whereas, you know, you maybe just studied finance in college or university, did your time as an analyst, associate VP, but at the end of the day, it's making sure that, you know, you're as well versed on that industry as the actual professionals professionals are that have built a thriving business and have maybe spent upwards of 40 years in it. So I find maybe, do you, is there any suggestions on maybe, you know, some personal development, whether it's, you know, getting some additional schooling or yeah, it's interesting. certificates, I mean, anything to kind yeah, of, I mean, if you're super like niche things like mining and where like fig or where, you know, I, I think if you've already been in banking for like seven or eight years covering the industry, you're probably are pretty knowledgeable. I think the key here is that you're likable and trusted and trustworthy, like that the, this executives want to go for you for that financial advice for that. That's more important than like them thinking, you know, every little last thing as much as them. Um, Although you should be up to date on the industry trends, you should be able to like give them some insight if possible on what's going on. Cause sometimes they're heads down in like the operations of the business and maybe you can add some value. So um, you gotta be likable. You gotta be personable. You gotta be, uh, you know, building that trust over time. Um, 
And I, I guess this is when you get to spend the company credit card a bit more, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's yes, when you get yeah. to, uh, yeah. in the little whining and dining, taking clients out all about obviously being like, it can likeable. take years. I mean, it can take years of that. And like, sometimes a lot of, I think a lot of bankers stall out at that BP level because they can't make that transition. Right. And it's kind of almost like a, an understanding or requirement to, to get to that MD level of like, you need to start actually bringing in business to the firm. So um, I think it's hard. It's a tough, it's a tough business. Um, but if you're really good at process work, sometimes the bank will keep you on at the VP level uh, for a pretty long time and you can still do pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Right and, and, in the end. and if it's, even if it takes five years, uh, seven years to really build those relationships, like that's, you know, if you have an MD that's kind of like older, that's kind of looking to slow down anyways, he can kind of hand those off over several years. And so they're getting to know that team of like the MDVP and that VP can slowly kind of move into that seat where they're, um, they're kind of taking the role of the MD as the MD slows down and eventually retires. Although sometimes MDs work till they're <laughs> I was going to ask, <laughs> I guess, drop the, work, the work-life balance there a little bit better on the MD side of things where uh, you have a little more control of like of where you work and like when you work um but yeah, it's just a lot of trap there's still a lot of travel even more, more travel. travel yeah, yeah. So it's, it's still tough um is it still upwards of like 70 80 hours a week you think no i mean some people are like maniacs and do just because they love it yeah <laughs> and they have no other outside passion and they're getting a cut like they're getting a cut of what they're bringing in typically you know they would negotiate yeah. agreement so um so yeah they'll still sometimes go crazy but yeah i'd say probably more typical is like 50 to 60 at that cool. level yeah so cool. right on all right well let's let's hop on here to the last topic i think this is nice it kind of takes pieces from the first two discussion topics but it's around uh ultimately you know networking and, and cold emails um i know me myself obviously being responsible for a lot of the sales initiatives here i understand the importance of of personalized emails so i can maybe touch on this a bit but um, you know, ultimately the, the question posed here is how to write cold emails that actually get responses. Um, so Pat, do you want to maybe give a few words here? Then I could chime in on, on what I think works best. Yeah. Um, I have a lot to say on this. Well, do you want to even reference that one email you hit me up on about three weeks ago and were you yes. shocked on, 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 yeah, there was, a, I can't remember what the company was. I think it was a credit card company, like ramp one of these business credit card companies. And I was pretty shocked at like the level of detail that the sales associate went to. They were like, Hey, I noticed that you're a Williams alum purple pub. They're like mentioning the, the pub, like downtown, like I'm headed over there. Da, da, da. It was to the point. I think you asked me like, do I know this person? <laughs> like, yeah it was like a little bit concerned well it was just so detailed about like a lot it was really like smart going into the details of like the school um of, of my of my undergrad to almost like it brings up a nostalgia right so it's like a very smart little angle there um but like people can use this for a career uh cold email so like i think this thread was all about like it was super generic or whatever like what i say is you have to balance um you have to balance cold emails in terms of like personalization and efficiency. And so it depends. Like if you go to um, like, let's say University of Texas or like a large state school with a huge finance program, I think trying to write like a tailored, super tailored email or initial intro email to every single one of those people, it actually is probably a little bit of a deterrent when you already know they're alums. So you can say, hey, I noticed you, da, 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 da. You're an alum of this, and I went here, and I noticed you're at this bank. So being a little bit more specific in that cold email to show you've at least read it, it takes like an extra 10 seconds. 
and probably would take your response rate from like 5% up to like 15, 20%. Um, I think it's worth that extra few seconds versus like if you're just, you know, filtering through, let's say you have like 3000 contacts you want to hit up because it's just a more generic filter for, I don't know, investment banks in like, or investment bankers in, um, I don't know, LA or something like that. And so yeah. like, it's a bigger group and you, you can still mention LA and how you want to be there and da da da. It still seems a little personal, personalized if you mention the company, but you don't have to be like, Hey, let me see where they went to school. Let me talk about the pub that they went to like, at <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't have to go to that level. Cause I think you're going to, you're going to end up, um, not getting through that because, you know, even if you get through that whole 2000 list and your response rate is only 10%, that's 200 people getting back to you. That's probably about 20 calls that you're going to be able to get on. And I'd rather, I'd rather the person do that rather than, um, you know, not even get through that list of 2000 because they're trying to send a person like a huge personalized thing. And it's, the other thing with the cold emails, they should be super short initially. And then once they connect with you, that second email, that should be more well-researched. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. Jot some points here. I would say one um, best practice that I learned is it's called three by three three minutes for three pieces of information and mm -hmm. you'd be shocked if it's pretty easy like you know you hear three minutes you think that's you know an incredibly short amount of time you know it's it's if you're looking at the right places it's extremely easy to find three personal um things to point to and i would suggest simply just even like linkedin right off the bat a lot of the points you mentioned alma matter bank they're currently working at even just previous work experience and sometimes even uh, the groups that they follow there you have visibility to that interest sometimes that might um, be something to reference. They're maybe following a certain sports account or uh, retailer of some sort that you can maybe point to. Um, the second place I would suggest to look at is always the company news page. Like when you're on their website, you go to news, you could reference maybe a deal that was uh, they've announced or uh, mm -hmm. possibly a new hiring, something of that nature. Um, it's very easy. Three minutes, three pieces of information, and you incorporate that into your emails. Uh, to your point, first outreach email should be short. Um, you definitely don't want to be having, you know, two, 300 word emails. It's, it's just not going to get read at the end of the day, people keep their time close to them. So, you know, for someone to spend even just a few minutes reading emails, you'd be surprised people are getting emailed all the time, um, from various vendors or just, you know, people wanting networking calls. Um, unless you're in that position, you won't realize that. So, you know, on the other side, being the person trying to do the outreach, you have to understand that these people of in, in these high level roles are getting, you know, upwards of 20, 30 emails already a day out, yeah. out um, you know, cold emails. So it's how to differentiate yourself. And the reason, and the way you do that, I think is in the subject line. So it's keeping the subject line light, um, but also unique where it's going to stand out and it's going to make them interested in opening up the email. Cause at the end of the day, that's step one, you know, again, it's with the idea Copy of copywriting like 101, man, copywriting yeah, 101. The idea that I kind of mentioned earlier of just like working backwards, the same thing. If you want them to hop on a call with you and, you know, ultimately buy or your service or go on a coffee date uh, for networking purposes, it all starts with them opening up your email. So how do you do that? Good subject line. It, it, if you just get it that granular. What's, what's an example of a good subject line for, uh, for like, what would you say for a networking? And we go through all this stuff in, um, in WSO Academy, which we're gonna we're gonna talk yeah, about soon, I, but I think uh, we have template. We have hundreds of templates that that work. But yeah, what do you yeah. think? Personalizing the subject line, uh, incorporating even just their first name somehow, um, incorporating maybe their alma mater. You know, it could be something like you know, uh, 
Williams, say they sophomore, want to Williams, Williams. Yeah. Williams, sophomore, uh, like, uh, yeah, Williams, sophomore looking to get in touch with, you know, or, or discuss X, Y, Z, whatever it's, it's like personalizing the subject line, yeah. keeping it short, um, I think is extremely important. And one little thing I like to do is including the, the regarding thing at the beginning. So it looks like to them that they've already opened the email. So they're more uh, inclined <laughs> to open it again. It's a little trick sales trick. I think people um, get pissed at that sometimes. I, I don't, at the end of the day, Pat, they're opening up the emails, which is the end of the, which is yeah. the end goal. Um, I haven't in my, I would say what, four years now of, of sales experience altogether, five years, I haven't gotten anyone saying what the hell is going on with this regarding. Um, so I'll keep doing you mean it. The RE, the RE colon. Yeah. The RE, the RE colon. Um, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a little mental trick again, because it's to them. It's like, well, I've already opened this. Right. Um, but I think at the end of the day, main theme is being personalizing the subject line. Uh, like we said, we, you know, William, so uh, William sophomore, um, looking to grab a coffee, dot, dot, dot. And I think, you know, that already looks a little bit more personable. Um, it's yeah, not gonna... even like, uh, even like some of the, some of the tricks in copywriting, um, around, uh, peaking curiosity a little bit can work as well. So like William, William sophomore with three, uh, or with, with two, with two questions or with two questions or something like that. And they're like, what yeah. are these questions? You know what I mean? It doesn't sound like a lot. They're going to yeah. like, suddenly they're going to know what those two questions are. And yeah. it could be like, you know, um, one, how, do, how, how can it be as successful as you two? Can we have with your short chat <laughs> Yeah, or something like yeah. that? You know, you stroke the ego a little bit, or maybe it's something like, Hey, number one, um, you know, when is the best time to, for you? And number two, um, I don't know, something around just working around their schedule. It can, it can be really casual, um, short, kind of fun. It could be a little funny, um, you know, obviously not goofy or like unprofessional, but yeah. And and one of the theme I did want to mention is also just the idea of, you know, having a little bit of a process around it and, and keeping track of results, I think is important because especially if, you know, you're going to, you know, you have a target list of say three, 3,000, you know, bankers in LA, like you mentioned that situation. Um, you don't want to just stick with one outreach for all 3000 and then realizing after oh, you know, it didn't work. I wasn't as successful as I'd hoped it, uh, hoped it went. I think the better um, way to tackle that is, you know, you start with 150 individuals, have a certain outreach email, see what the conversion on that looks like. You know, you did 150, yep. you got a 40% open rate of which 20 responded of which, you know, three said, sure, let's, let's have a time to chat. That's great. Then you could just obviously then, you know, do that for the remaining amount of people and you can then anticipate, you know, what type of results you're going to get. It's helpful on the flip side, if you do 150 and you get two responses and not a single person has said, yeah, sure. Let's have a, let's have a chat. So that's where you want to start changing things and see yeah. then uh, where the success. Yeah. And you can uh, even split test. You can split test by sending hundred two versions that you're not sure which one's going to do better that have been you know, really tailored and, and you've taken time to really think about like, okay, if I was in this person's shoes, I, I'm not sure which one would do better. And usually the the subject line can be the differentiator is almost like, I mean, yes, every piece matters, but like subject line sometimes can be like the difference between like a 30% open rate and like an eight, a 70 or 80% open rate. Like if it's a really good subject line. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that can be like a two X difference in your response rate and your bookings, uh, your, your informational interviews, which is kind of the goal here to build those relationships so you can get more interviews and more offers. So. Yeah, exactly. So I think, cool. yeah, main themes here, just being personalized the email. Don't got to spend a bunch of time on it. You know, three minutes, three pieces of information, um, keep it short and sweet. 
uh, but then also do have a process around it where you're you're staying you're, you're staying nimble and able to make changes on the fly to this outreach approach. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, just to get some some good results. Um, but yeah, I think that's it from from my end of things. I think uh, great combo today, Pat, with a short bench. Um, but I think we'll we'll wrap it up here and we'll we'll look forward to chatting with everyone uh, next Thursday. Fun times. All right. Thanks, guys. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, Patrick at WallStreetOasis.com. Until next time.